Well, Father, we are grateful to be here and to sit under your word. Your word is clear, it is prescient, it is powerful. And Lord, it speaks to our lives. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you'll help us to rightly understand your word and apply it where you see fit. We pray this in Christ's name. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Well, the year was 1782, and the pastor of Trinity Church in Cambridge, England, passed away, and the bishop, who was over that diocese, over many dioceses, by the way, appointed a freshly minted, ordained minister by the name of Charles Simeon. Now, Charles Simeon grew up in High Church, England, familiar with the liturgy and the creeds and all of the trappings of the Anglican religion. But he became a born-again Christian three years before his appointment. And so here he was, a graduate of Cambridge University, eager to give his life to ministry and was excited to get his first pulpit assignment. Unfortunately, the members of Trinity Church were not excited about him. They actually wanted another candidate. And when Charles Simeon learned of this, he told his bishop, if they'd rather have somebody else, uh, by all means, let them have that candidate. And the bishop said, even if you were not the rector of this church, I'm not appointing that guy. And so it was clear that Charles was to be their vicar. So the church found creative ways to oppose him. Normally, they would have a Sunday afternoon lecture where he would get up and lecture on some topic, but they decided to hire that out to somebody else, the preferred candidate, and they did it for 12 years. Being that he did not have the afternoon available, he decided to do an evening service where he would preach, but the church wardens locked the doors. And speaking of locking, when he would preach on Sunday morning, they had what you call box pews. I'm not sure if you've ever seen them, where a family would have like their own special space that you would be able to enter by lock and key, and that is where you listen to your preacher preach. And so the congregation decided to lock all the pews. So can you imagine what it'd be like if all of these pews were all blocked off and the only place where people could hear him preaching was by standing in the aisles and the empty spaces. Now, his story is not unique. He was a faithful pastor who had a congregation that resented him for it. He was a faithful pastor in unfaithful times. And it's true that often when you hear a pastor getting fired, uh, the instinct is, well, what did they do wrong? But there are many times when you do have a faithful pastor who was rejected by an unfaithful congregation. Let's go to our text today. And last week, we talked about my job description, right? I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by the appearing and his kingdom, right, he lays down the witnesses, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. And then 
we go to the text for this week. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Now, previously, Paul tells Timothy that you preach the word. You preach the gospel and all its implications. You preach a revelation of the word of God to change and transform the flock. And every time a pastor preaches the word, he picks a fight with Satan. Satan, the ruler of this world, does not want you to submit to King Jesus. And there is opposition from outside the church, and there's opposition from inside the church. And so what do you do if you're a man like Charles Simeon, someone who has been born again? Now, it was interesting, in England at that time, that was actually a controversial doctrine. People would all attend church. Part of being British was to be a churchman, to be a member of the Church of England. And so for some evangelical to come in and tell a congregation that going to church is not enough, you must be born again, chafed them. How dare you say that I'm not acceptable to God in this situation right now? And yet he did. And opposition came. You see, there will always be opposition to the gospel. And sometimes in various churches and assemblies, opposition will come from within. Now, I thank God for you. I thank God that you more than welcome this type of teaching. You would fire me if I don't do this type of teaching. But that's not the case everywhere, and that may not be the case here at some point in time. And so this is really a, a pastoral call, right? How do you stay faithful when opposition comes? And there's really two commands from this passage. Number one, you foresee the opposition. Foresee opposition. And number two, fulfill your calling. Foresee opposition, fulfill your calling. And I, I realize that in this congregation, there's a couple of future pastors here. Uh, there's other people who are ministry leaders in some context. But there's also a larger role that you all have to play, right? You all don't want to be the opposition. You don't want to be like Trinity Church in Cambridge that was opposing the faithful preaching of the gospel. And really for this arrangement to work, I need to be faithful, you need to be faithful to continue the faithful ministry of the word. And so there will be implications all around so this is primarily a text given to Timothy and to those in that kind of role. And so it's good for you to listen in. But as you listen in, think about how we can make it easier for those pastors who are faithful. So the first thing to do when opposition comes is you've got to foresee opposition. When you sign up for the ministry, you understand that it's not going to be a cakewalk. Not everyone's going to love you. Sometimes people will despise you for what you are teaching. Starting in verse 3, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. 
So we'll dissect this passage. At the heart of this passage is a reckoning with sound teaching. Right? Some, something that is sound, it is solid, it is healthy, it is robust. Paul earlier tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.13, follow the pattern of sound, there's a word, sound words that you have heard from me and the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Now, as you recall, Paul is in a Roman prison. He has committed his life to preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ in the midst of much opposition. And he is passing on this solid teaching to Timothy so that he can pass it on to the next generation, right? This, this is a letter of preparation. Timothy, you need to continue the call which God has given to you. I am passing the torch to you. And so he's telling him that you must continue in sound teaching, but this sound teaching is going to be opposed. People will not endure sound teaching. And you think to yourself, why would people not like sound teaching? Why would people not want to hear about the glories of Jesus Christ? Well, Paul tells the audience in Ephesians 2.2 about their former life in which you once walked according to the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. I'll be in gender inclusive. And daughters of disobedience. Right? There is a spirit of the age. There is satanic opposition. And those who do not embrace the gospel are categorized as not sons and daughters of the king, but sons and daughters of disobedience. And so who are these sons of disobedience? Now, you might think that the sons of obedience apply to those anti-God university professors, those LGBT activists, those gang members, and communists. But it also applies to church-attending Americans, stalwart Republicans, and cultural conservatives who have not embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, whether you reject the righteousness of Christ by your own self-righteousness or unrighteousness is all the same. It's a rejection of the call to pick up your cross and follow Jesus. And no matter your background and where you are on the conservative liberal spectrum, if you've rejected Jesus Christ, you are outside the kingdom. You are a son or daughter of disobedience. And so this is the group of people that reject sound teaching. Now, we also see in verse 3 that people will not endure sound teaching. Now, this implies that they were exposed to it at one point in time, but they decided not to endure it. Now, do you guys remember where Timothy was ministering? It is Ephesus. And one of the most moving passages given to elders in Scripture is when Paul is on his way to Jerusalem where he knows he will be arrested. And he meets with the elders and they have their final goodbye. 
And he warns them in Acts 20, 29. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Fierce wolves will come from among you. It will be an inside job. We also know from his first letter to 1 Timothy, to Timothy, 1 Timothy 1, 6 through 8, Paul says this. He says, certain persons by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or things about which they are making confident assertions. It's likely that some of the elders have risen up from within and are corrupting the church. And Paul's making it very clear that the congregation that you're preaching to Timothy, you need to preach in season and out of season because this congregation will one day try to turn on the truth. So what causes the turn? Well, you see there is uh, a phrase here, itching ears. Itching ears. Now, I have an awful allergy to poison ivy. I get within 10 feet, I break out. Some of you have seen my poison ivy in full form, and it is just gross. It's just gross. I get PTSD thinking about it. It's awful. <laughs> and so when I get exposed to poison ivy and I see that blister, there's like this writing on it that says, scratch me, right? It's all I could think about. And I'm like, oh, it'd be nice to scratch me. Oh, I'll take this scalding hot shower. It doesn't count as scratching, but man, it feels so good to make it burn, right? And, and I know it's bad for me and I should not dig in and scratch, but I want to. See, itching ears work the same way where they work in concert with the desires of your heart where you want something. You have this desire. You want to basically accumulate for yourselves teachers to suit their own passions. It starts with a passion instead of the truth, right? Instead of having a high view of God where we find out what the Bible says and then deal with it, right? I always tell people having a high view of God is to come to God on his terms, not your own, and his terms are given in the scriptures. And if you don't like what the scriptures say, that's your problem, some people start with their passions and their desires, their itching ears. And they think, maybe the Bible's the problem. And they'll try to find some teachers. They'll accumulate some teachers. They'll, the li word literally means heap. They'll heap some teachers to satisfy their itching ears. They will twist the scriptures to satisfy their itching ears. And when the twisting goes beyond the point, breaking point, they'll just go ahead and make up a myth. In 1 Timothy 1, 3 through 4, as I urged you, as I was going to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which often promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Right? So they will speculate, they'll have some visions, they'll have some myths to justify the doctrine that they want. And so what happens is the passion that they have, the itching ears, drives them towards certain teachers who will tell them what they want to hear. A young man on the internet, there's a little pop-up, why are young people leaving the faith? 
Well, I'm going to go ahead and click on that one. And he sees how it's a lack of integrity of the pastors. It's the church handing them over, handing themselves over to the Republican Party. It's the fact that they're not dealing with the racism of the past and how they're blind to racial prejudice. And his confidence in the church authority begins to erode. Yeah, these are bad people. Yeah, they are just trying to keep their power. And so he makes the decision to just kind of live the life with a little bit more freedom. He starts sleeping with his girlfriend. His pastor finds out, calls him out on it. And he's pretty upset. Who does that pastor think he is? He can't just tell me how to live. And, you know, there's all kinds of ways to approach this topic. And so he begins to Google and find podcasts of pastors who are more sex positive that are telling him what he wants to hear. And they begin to explain that you can't uh, just allow the Bible to dictate how you live your life. That's the sin of bibliolatry. There's an openness to God. He wants you to be happy and refreshed. And, and eventually, he tries that for a while. That doesn't work. And he begins to question just the veracity of the Scriptures overall. And then he decides to come out publicly on Instagram that he is no longer a Christian. And now he's living with his girlfriend. All of that driven by a desire to hear what he wants to hear. And this guy's mom reads the Instagram post and says to herself, I know this kid is a Christian. My little Johnny became a Christian at six years old. And who are these people who are questioning his salvation? I know his heart. And she reads books about how you can be a carnal Christian, that you don't have to accept Jesus as, as Lord. Once you're saved, you're always saved. It doesn't matter if you're denying the faith outright and explicitly by your life and by your words later in life. She knows he's a Christian. And she begins to challenge any pastor who says otherwise as a legalist. And incidentally, churches that are filled with these kinds of Christians, with this kind of theology, they fire pastors pretty easily. They fire pastors very easily. You see, there's a, there's a danger when you allow your passions to dictate your theology. Because we live in a day and age where you are, can easily right, accumulate false teachers. They're just a podcast or an internet article away. Do you love money? Satan has a false teacher for you. Money is not the root of all evil. It's a sign of God's blessing and faith. Do you love your freedom? Satan has a false teacher for you. Those who say that you have to obey the word of God are committing the sins of bibliology. God is a God of love. You know, live the way that you want. Do you love power? Well, men, Satan has a teacher for you. Your wife is to submit to you above all others. Your daughter is not to leave your home until she is married to somebody else, and you better not let the women in your family work because they'll be under another male head. You are the prophet, priest, king. They should answer to you as Lord, and don't let any pastor tell you differently. Do you feel, want to feel righteous? Satan has a false teacher for you. You're a member of an oppressed community. Therefore, you have the right to speak on issues that pertain to your ethnicity. And other people, especially the ruling class, the oppressive class, needs to take a listening posture. Or, you are an expert in doctrine. 
doesn't matter how well uh, other people might live their lives. Your life might be a mess, but at least you have theology correct. You can dot every I and every T, cross every T. See, Satan has a false teacher for you. Now, when we look at our cultural moment that we are in, there is a strong leftward pull. That's just reality. You look at the advocacy of LGBT issues, the transgender movement, socialism has become culturally acceptable, critical race theory is mainstream, and these ideals dominate public schools, public universities, media, news media, Fortune 500 companies. That is the overwhelming pull. Now, <clears throat> you look at that combined with a, a, a flavor of church ministry that is seeker-sensitive that tries to be culturally relevant, and you find that some of those ideas are infiltrating the church. I was at a conference last week, and I looked at one book table, and I saw the titles, White Awake, and Rediscipling the White Church. And I'm just like, whoa, right? So you feel it. Now, this is the danger. You can allow an extra dislike towards one point of view to drive you indiscriminately towards the other side. Right? If you're crossing the street and 95% of the traffic is coming from the left, you still need to look to the right. Now, some of you might think to yourself, you can't go wrong if you go right. Can't go wrong if you go right. I can't conceive of any way that going to the right is going to damage me spiritually. Well, let me give you an example of how theoretically it could happen. If you've ever been on YouTube, and let's say you go to a few conservative sites, you might see a commercial for the Epic Times. Now, the Epic Times was founded by uh, a communist dissident who opposed the communist government. And when you look at their articles, they talk about the dangers of government overreach and control. They promoted President Trump. They oppose illegal immigration. They even oppose evolution. And so you might think to yourself, what's wrong with the Epic Times? Well, they are a mouthpiece for the Falun Gong, which is a Buddhist doomsday cult with a compound in upstate New York that is very, very tightly controlled who believes that President Trump was heaven sent to destroy the Chinese Communist Party. And you think, well, how could this be a danger to me? Now, one of the phenomenon that I've noticed in America is we don't know who to trust anymore and we don't know who's telling us the truth. I mean, it's kind of like this, what newspaper do you read? What source of information do you have? And what many people have decided to do is they will adopt a news interpreter. It might be Ben Shapiro or Al Mohler, right? Those are two news interpreters that we often lean upon in the Hintz household, just so you know. So you trust a news interpreter to tell you who's telling the truth. Now, the Epic Times wants you to trust them to be your news interpreter, 
so that they can tell you what is true and is what is not true. And given that they're part of a Buddhist cult, what do you think they want to do? Do you see it? Satan doesn't care if you drift to the left or to the right. He just wants you to drift from the Bible. Okay? Satan doesn't care if you drift left or right. He wants you to drift from the Bible. And the solution to all that is not to allow your preference for one political view or another to color your interpretation of Scripture. You need to fulfill your calling, right? Expect opposition from both sides. Might not be asymmetrical, but they come from both sides. But you also fulfill your calling. Look at verse 5. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. He gives four basic commands. In the face of opposition, the first thing you need to do is keep your head. You need to be sober-minded. You need to be able to think about things clearly. Don't get swept up in the moment. And when he's talking about being sober-minded, it's in the context of recognizing and identifying false teaching. False teaching. Now, now what's interesting is all of us might have different tendencies, right? Uh, for somebody who really loves to study doctrine, uh, some people love to study doctrine because they love theological novelty. They love the exploration, the discovery of a new idea, a fresh perspective on something, a new way uh, of putting these pieces together. And if this disposition goes unchecked, it might lead to, let's say, a denial of the Trinity. Others might see the danger in this, and so their approach to doctrine is perhaps to look at the Bible, but you want to use a confession as a backstop. So it might be the 1689 London Baptist Confession. But that doesn't address all of these issues that you start to have as you kind of work within the doctrine, and so then it becomes a Westminster Catechism. And then when the Westminster Catechism kind of defies what you believe and how you put all things together, you might go to the Roman Catholic faith. It's a journey that many people have. And so what you have to do is you have to ask yourself to be sober-minded. Where am I tempted to drift? Okay? Part of humility is recognizing that all of us are fallen, all of us have biases, all of us have passions, all of us have proclivities. And in Trevin Wax's book, The Multidirectional Leader, he gives three questions to help you think about yourself. Number one, if my ministry were to distort the gospel in some way, what kind of distortion would it be? If my ministry were to distort the gospel in some way, what kind of distortion would it be? What's my temptation? If I were to drift theologically, in what direction would it happen? If I were to drift theologically, what direction would it happen? And thirdly, how would my temperament or personality affect my tendencies? Do you, gradually, do you naturally gravitate towards controversy, where that might make you pugnacious, belligerent? Or are you a peacemaker, which will cause you to just say, peace, peace, when there is no peace? Right, all of us have these tendencies, so it's important to ask yourself and take inventory where is the danger within me? Where can I drift? That will help you to 
stay sober-minded. Secondly, you need to endure suffering. Part of it is you can't live your life trying to avoid persecution. Paul promises in 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Right? You will be persecuted by the world. I mean, the gospel, Jesus is Lord, and all his implications, that he died on the cross, was raised again, it implies judgment, doesn't it? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever shall believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life, right? There is a promise of judgment there, isn't there? If you don't believe in Jesus Christ, you will perish. If you don't take the step of faith of believing and trusting in Jesus Christ, you are on the outside of God's plan and he will be opposed to you for all of eternity. You can't live the way that you want to live. Otherwise, you will perish. That is a highly offensive message. You mean I'm going to go to hell for not believing the right thing? Who are you to tell me what to do? Right? You have to get used to it. This world would not like that message. Paul knew that suffering was a part of his ministry, but he was able to persevere. He was able to persevere because he knew the reward. Moving ahead, a couple of verses to 2 Timothy 4, 6 through 8. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, for the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Right? You can persevere because there's a prize at the end. Charles Simeon stayed at that church and after 49 years he was asked about how he endured and he said this, My dear brother, we must not mind a little suffering for Christ's sake. When I'm getting through a hedge, if my head and shoulders are safely through, I can bear the prickling of my legs. Let us rejoice in the remembrance that our holy head has surmounted all his suffering and triumphed over death. Let us follow him patiently. We shall soon be partakers of his victory. So when opposition comes, you persevere. You also do the work of an evangelist, right? Do the work of an evangelist. Now, clarification's in order. When, you, when I say the word evangelist, who comes to mind? You might think Billy Graham, right? He had a itinerant ministry where he filled large stadiums and he preached the gospel, he shared the gospel. That is what he did. He wasn't a pastor, he was an evangelist. Or you think about how the church might have an evangelist on, on staff, right? That is his specific call. And so you might separate evangelism from what I do this every Sunday morning when I'm preaching. But really, evangelism is... The, the logical next step of the gospel, right? If you believe that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that every human being who has ever sinned deserves death and hell, therefore, this whole world is condemned in their present state, 
and you believe that Jesus died on the cross to take the penalty for our sins and that salvation can only be acquired by explicit faith in Jesus Christ, otherwise people will go to hell. And if you have been moved by the love of Jesus Christ to then love other people, what will you naturally want to do? Share your faith. And what Paul is telling Timothy is lean into this, always be a man who is preaching the gospel. And remember, the gospel is not just the plan of salvation. There, there's, there's a larger context to it, right? Uh, essentially, every time you preach the word, you're preaching the authority of God. That's part of the gospel. You preach the reality of sin. That's part of the gospel. You preach about the hope in Christ. That is part of the gospel. And certain sermons will emphasize some parts more than others. But what is being called here is that Paul tells Timothy to do the work of heralding the good news. Always teach the scriptures in the midst of it. Right? That is the antidote. Charles Simeon, you have the same commitment. In preaching... And he's considered by many one of the most influential expositors of all time. His rule was this, to endeavor to give every portion of the word of God its full and proper force without consideration what scheme it favors or whose system it is likely to advance. It wasn't a hobby horse preacher. He said, my endeavor is to bring out of scripture what is there and not to thrust in what I think might be there. I have a great jealousy on this head, never to speak more or less than I believe to be the spirit and mind in the passage I am expounding. Expounding. Right? He wanted to preach the word as it stood. Right? He wanted to remove himself and allow the word to stand on its own. You can't go wrong if you go with the word. Agreed? You preach the word. You receive the word. And finally... Well, I'll say one more comment too. If a pastor is in a congregation that opposes him and he is faithful to the gospel, this is what happens when you preach the word. Those goats in the audience, some of them will leave and go to a goat church. Some of them will convert and stay and become sheep. And other sheep who hear his father's voice, her father's voice, will come and be a part of the flock. And that's eventually what happened at Simeon's church. He kept on preaching the word, and those who stayed became sheep, and he draw, drew other sheep, and he was able to really flourish in the ministry. Now, the third point. He says, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, and then fulfill your ministry. He's fulfilling a promise. He's fulfilling an obligation. He is fulfilling a duty. Earlier, 2 Timothy 2, 4 through 7, Paul says, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is a hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. He's telling Timothy, you signed up for the ministry. You need to see your commitment all the way through. Timothy, do not flake on the ministry. 
Timothy, do not redefine the ministry. Do not quit the ministry. Do not retire from the ministry. Fulfill the ministry. You know what you need to do. You've got a calling. There's a lot at stake. Charles Simeon stayed in his pulpit for 52 years. Death took him away from it. And in his first year, this is what he told his flock. Remember the nature of my office and the care incumbent on me for the welfare of your immortal souls. Consider whatever may appear in my discourses harsh, earnest, alarming, not as the effects of enthusiasm, basically he was not trying to emotionally manipulate them, but as the rational dictates of a heart impressed with a sense both of the value of the soul and the importance of eternity. By recollecting the awful consequences of my neglect, you'll be more inclined to receive favorably any well-meant admonitions. Right? If, if a pastor is faithful, he's trying to warn the flock. He's trying to help the flock. He's for them. He's not against them. And this kind of begs the question, right? He was there in ministry. What happened to those people who had enough of his preaching and left? What happened to Timothy, Timothy's flock, right? When those people had enough of his teaching and decided to accumulate for themselves teachers who told them what they wanted to hear. See, one of Satan's chief tactics is to try to separate shepherds from the flock, parents from their children. He wants you to be isolated. He wants you to have a cynical disposition towards your shepherds. And there is a, a rise in this disposition in our culture, and think even in the church. I've talked to other pastors about this. And I'm going to walk you through three reasons why this cultural moment is kind of leading to that. Number one, we live in a post-truth culture. We live in a post-truth culture. Culture has decided that truth is learned and embraced by narrative. Does it fit the narrative as opposed to does it fit the data, right? So if you look at um, racism is a huge problem in America, and we are dominated by racist institutions. They don't necessarily back it up with data, but by stories, by anecdotes that prove the narrative. Okay? Truth is often proven by narrative. We live in a post-truth culture. Secondly, we live in a suspicious culture, specifically towards people who have power. Okay, the reason why you're saying that, Pastor Dave, is because you're white. The reason why the CDC wants me to follow their instructions is because they're on the take from Big Pharma. Right, there's always some reason, right, for you to be suspicious of authority. And that's the third point. There is a cynical disposition towards leadership. There's a cynical disposition towards leadership. And I think 
and we have podcasters, broadcasters, authors, and the like who will feed this in your life. And the problem with cynicism, especially towards leadership and towards authority, is the people who feed that to you want you to distrust authority. And when you start distrusting faithful, qualified authority, who are you going to naturally gravitate towards? I mean, let's say you have a faithful pastor in a small town. One thing about small town churches is it's the only evangelical church in town. It's the only church that, that preaches the gospel. And so there is pressure to cast a wider net, to be inclusive of all the Christians who are there. And there is a pastor who wants to be faithful, and he reads Matthew 18 about how to deal with people who are in sin. And he finds out that one of the deacons, a prominent member of the congregation, has been having an adulterous affair with his nurse, who is not his wife. He confronts him privately. The doctor refuses to resign. He tries to take some deacons with him to confront him. It doesn't go well. He wants to tell it to the church. And this is what the doctor is starting to do. He begins to go to other people in the church and explain how this pastor is trying to confront him on this sin. And yeah, he's human. He knows that this is a problem, but you don't understand the marriage that he has and some of the issues that his wife really drove him to it. And he begins to spin this whole tale. And then, and then other people kind of take up the cause because this pastor's from the outside. He's not one of us. And so they began to brainstorm of all the ways this pastor has failed them, how he didn't go to the high school football game. He, he is aloof. He's always wanted to study the word instead of spending time with the people. He was harsh that one time in a counseling session. He, he, he has this aloof, proud disposition. Who, who is he to cast the first stone? And next thing you know, that pastor gets fired. And who is left to lead the congregation? Who's left to lead the congregation? It's the people who got the pastor fired. It's the demagogues. Now, I understand that we live in a day and age where uh, the sins of pastors are front page news. There are podcasts about the sins of pastors. There's uh, an article, it seems like every other week, about this church covering up for abusers. Or are these pastors not handling the situation in the right way, right? There is a narrative that you can't trust the pastors because they are flawed men and often they're part of a larger conspiracy. So here's a question for you. Who wants you to buy that narrative? Who wants you to have a cynical disposition towards qualified leadership? Now, if you find yourself that you're kind of drifting there. You know, Pastor Dave, I'm having a hard time with what you're saying right now because who are you to tell me this? Of, of course you're going to tell us, obey your leaders to submit to them. For you're keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. Pastor Dave, that's like your favorite verse. You love that verse. I do love that verse, by the way. But there is this, 
give an account part that is frightening. Right? The Lord's going to deal with me for all my failings and stuff like that. The Lord knows those. He will deal with me with a stricter judgment. Pray for me. But as for you, if you have a cynical disposition towards church leadership, you have to ask yourself, have the church leaders disqualified themselves in some way? Have they disqualified themselves? Is there a witness for their disqualification? Have they covered abuse or done something like that that would cause you to rightfully distrust them? And if that's not the case, then why aren't you giving them the benefit of the doubt? What is it that they're doing that's bothering you so much? And who wants you to create space between you and your local leaders, right? Who wants you to distrust your local leaders who not only teach you but know you and understand you, who pray for you by name, are concerned about you? Who wants you to distrust your local leaders? See, God has ultimately given godly men to the church for your good and for your protection. We are flawed. We do not match these qualifications perfectly. But we will give an account for your souls. And just like that rebellious teenager who starts to disbelieve the parents, right? And starts to get coached more by the internet than by their parents. Who is being fed that you can't understand your parents. Your parents don't understand they don't love you. Just like that person puts themselves in danger. You do that when you, when you basically push the shepherds away. So I don't know if that's you. But if it is, my challenge is, is to talk to somebody about it. To pray about it. And then just to ask the question, do you believe that God has given you shepherds to protect you? Do you want their protection? Do you need their protection? And will you pray for them to be faithful ministers so that when opposition comes, they will stand firm and they'll stand firm for you? Let's pray. Well, Father, we come before you just grateful for the clarity of your word. And Lord, I thank you for this church. I thank you for their disposition. I thank you that they want to be shepherded. And Lord, we do live in controversial times. There is suspicion all around, and, and sometimes there is good reasons for it. But Lord, help us not to give in to cynical spirits. Help us to trust you, trust your sovereign plan. Trust the people that you have over us who have... Uh, truly earn trust. And I pray that our church will be united so that we can continue to preach the word and do the work of the evangelist to this community and reach many lost souls for you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.